Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, philosopher Vishal Mangalwadi describes how Christianity came into India, along with education and health institutions. Vishal shares how he and others are living out Jesus' game-changing teaching on care for the least of these. Vishal, just after you were married in Chathrapur, you started a, a work among the people there. What, what were you doing? We, we organized a group called Association for Comprehensive Rural Assistance. We were trying to transform villages. We realized that education, health, agriculture, economy, politics, they are all interrelated. So we were trying to impact every area of society. Now, in a situation like that, in a place, I would guess, across India, which is quite needy, you would think that everybody's enthusiastic, were they? No, no, because once an outside force comes in, you are disrupting the status quo, the established relationships. So if you start a school, you're paying the teacher, and you go and inspect the school and you find that one particular child or two or three children are sitting not on the mats but outside away from everybody else on the floor and you find out this is because they are untouchables and your teachers cannot have them sit with everybody else because then the upper caste students will not sit. So even at that level of small children their parents don't want them to sit with the untouchables, play with the untouchables. So you're coming with an outside idea that all human beings are equal and you're disrupting the established system, uh, society. So uh, you expect opposition. What, what sort of opposition do you get? Just, you know, people are oh, not very happy? Several attempts at murdering me. Uh, and uh, lots of false court cases, getting arrested, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, Continuous newspaper uh, write-ups that, oh, these people are not here to serve, they are here to convert, etc. Wow. I mean, it just surprises people enormously that that actually treating people equally causes enormous disruption. Yes, because the idea that all human beings are equal is not part of Indian tradition. This is a uh, whole society is built on the idea that God created us unequal and that people are born unequal because of the, their actions in previous lives. It's called karma. Your a- action in previous life, your karma impacts the status in which you are born. So there are two, th- those two factors that God created different castes differently and then each individual is born according. Some are born male and some female. Some are born healthy, others are born sick. And that has to do with the, their action in previous lives. So in other words, the whole system of what, what say people in the West would say is, is inequity is actually, they believe that's just the way it ought to be. Uh, correct. And this has a lot of social implications like once I was arrested because uh, in our area there was a young man he was the first untouchable young man who had become a medical doctor and he was posted in a uh, large village small town medical hospital this was public hospital and he was posted as the only at that time only physician so the chief of those villages around there 
and it, it's actually a town. They objected that we cannot have an untouchable man as the physician here. So when the member of parliament, who was an upper caste lady, she went to visit that town, the village city elders, town elders, town is the right word, the town elders met with her and told her, Mummy, next time we are not going to vote for you. Why? Because your government has appointed this fellow as the doctor here. So she had him beaten up, thrown in jail on completely false charges of rape. And no one will stand up for that doctor. I came under a lot of pressure from people that you are the only fool who could do something for him. And as I thought and prayed about it, I realized that we were running 13 schools, but he was a much bigger force for education because thousands of young people belonging to the lower caste, they looked upon him, they were inspired that if we study, we could become like this. So he was giving the motivation uh, without which our efforts wouldn't succeed. So I felt that it, there was no point in educating these young people unless we can stand up for their right to uh, practice their profession with dignity. So I was thrown in jail uh, in attempting, calling for uh, justice to him. I was thrown in jail, kept there for a week. And this gives you an idea. Now the very simple reason which even I didn't understand at first, why would a member of parliament not take pride that the policies of her party uh, have actually helped this untouchable young man to become a medical doctor? And the simple fact which dawned on me much later which when people explained to me was that until that point the upper caste had been practically raping lower caste women at will. Now this untouchable young man had acquired the right to ask a woman to take off her clothes in front of him. This was totally unacceptable in the, in the village. So you can't give that kind of power to him. Is, is your, in your own life and in your family, Christian faith is foundational. Is that the only reason that you have a different view on the caste system? Correct, because there is no other a basis for affirming human equality. If evolution is a fact, then evolution is assuming inequality, that everybody has evolved unequal. It's an explanation of why people have evolved unequal. So on the basis of evolution, you cannot build a case for human equality. The case for human equality rests on the idea that God created all men in his image, male and female, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So a Brahmin, an upper caste Hindu, is not closer to God because of his birth. He is as far away from God as an untouchable person. But God so loved the world that he loved the untouchable and the upper caste. Anyone can come to him and become uh, his child that once we become a child of God through repentance and faith, he gives us the Holy Spirit. We, we become living stones, like living stones we are being welded together or cemented together into a temple. But those are the foundations that, which uh, Peter uh, summarized as priesthood of all believers. In fact, historically, 
that is where, where the first time when Luther discovered the doctrine of priesthood of all believer, that the concept of human equality entered the European consciousness. Because Europe didn't have an idea of human equality. The idea developed gradually from trying to understand if, if, it, if all human beings are priests of God, then everyone must study. In India, only the upper caste men, Brahmin men were allowed to study, even Brahmin women were not allowed to study. So the idea that everyone must know God, therefore everyone must study the universal education, that concept was already there in Judaism. But in Europe, it came from Luther's discovery of this idea that all human beings uh, are priests. So everyone needs to know God, everyone can enter the temple, everyone can worship, anyone can preach. It has nothing to do with one's heredity. Vishal, that change in Europe must have been revolutionary, but it, it, it's a revolutionary here in India. So has it, has it really kind of influenced India? How, how did it come? Yes, in India, the idea came about 200 years ago with the first Protestant missionary from the English-speaking world, that was William Carey. Now, he was a cobbler before he became a linguist and a missionary came from England to India. Uh, and incidentally, the British India wouldn't allow him to work here as a missionary. So Danish uh, colony in Sirampur, north of Bengal, um, north of Calcutta, that's where he began his mission, the Baptist mission uh, in India. But because he, his background had been cobbler, he was shocked to see how India t treated uh, cobblers, those who worked with leather. And uh, it, this was totally unacceptable to him because it just uh, flew in the face of everything that the Bible teaches about human equality. So he made it a practice that uh, anyone who came to believe in Jesus Christ had to sit with all other castes and eat together. Now, that was a revolution which made evangelism hard, but it made evangelism and conversion genuine. Now, unfortunately, England already had caste system, or class system rather, not the caste system, but class system. So later in 1813, where missions became legal and Oxford and Cambridge educated elite could come into India as missionaries, gradually the compromise began and they realized that we would get upper caste Hindus to send their kids in our schools if we didn't allow the lower caste kids to, uh, they'd have to sit together. So if there was segregation or class system within Christian education in India, then we will get more upper caste exposed to the gospel. But that was a compromise which really corrupted the Indian church and became very difficult. The matter became even more complex when American missionaries, because America had slavery and racism much more than England, when American missionaries came and they found that the upper caste converts don't really want to sit with the lower caste converts and drink communion from the same cup, then American missionaries had uh, said, oh, we tolerate racism in our churches, the whites and blacks worship separately. We should tolerate in India as well. So that uh, class system from England and racism from America corrupted the Indian church. But this battle continued. And uh, in the end, the seed of the gospel grows 
it grows in the middle of thorns and thistles and uh, roadside and all kinds, but thankfully there is some plenty of good soil. Uh, so Indians began to import the biblical idea of human equality into Hinduism, particularly Buddhism. Now the issue about all the, the, equal, the equality of human, humanity actually comes down to also how we care for people. So how did care, caring for anybody that was in any need function in India when you have basic inequality. So what would happen to someone in need in India? Well, that's where the practical conflict between the gospel and the Hindu culture got going. The, the iconic case is the widow burning. Mm -hmm. That here is a young woman, and that was one of my most important public fights in India. In 1987, an 18-year-old widow in Rajasthan in Sikar had uh, committed sati, was forced to burn herself on her husband's funeral pyre. And I went there and investigated it and wrote the story which was published in uh, the Indian Express's front page story, The Revival of Widow Burning. And we got, uh, the media was supporting me, so the, finally the government supported that program. And if you read in history books the story of that, um, a widow burning. Uh, my name figures in that, but in most of the feminist literature dealing with this issue. But um, the interesting thing is, while we were able to mobilize 400 intellectuals, intelligentsia, feminists here in Delhi to oppose widow burning, um, the Hindus in Rajasthan were able to mobilize 200,000 people demanding that the ban on sati, ban on widow burning should be abolished. Um, and uh, we don't need to go into the details of that uh, incident, but th that is just a case that Hinduism couldn't even care, the, this is upper caste Hindus, they couldn't even care for a helpless widow. She's just lost her husband. She may have little children. She needs all the love and support and care. But you see her as a problem and you want to solve that problem by eliminating the problem. Burn her. That explains also the continuing problem of female infanticide. With the help of abortion, now you call it female feticide that if the baby who is conceived is female, you abort the baby. So selective abortion of only girls. So you have uh, states such as Haryana, uh, just um, the west of us, northwest of us here in Delhi, uh, where the population of male and female, ratio of male and female is 1,000 to 800, mm. which then justifies polyandry, that two or three brothers should marry one girl, uh, because there's shortage of girls. Um, prostitution becomes and permissiveness. So a lot of complications happen because a woman is not equal. So uh, you should be caring for, we, in, in my book, my wife, she started the struggle to save this girl who was being starved to death by her own parents and we fought over five, six months in 
taking the girl, putting her into the hospital, treating her, bringing her to our home, uh, continuing to feed her. And then the mother would come fight and take the girl again. That, oh, village is upset, our community is upset, that she's drinking milk in your home and you're Christian. It's better for her to die than for her to be fed by us. No one in the village would help the family look after this girl. Parents see this girl as uh, a problem, a liability. You take care of her for 10, 12 years, then you have to marry her, you need dowry. And then her parents will torture her uh, to extract more money from you. Then she is pregnant and needs to be in her mother's home for delivery, so the parents have to take care of the childbirth, etc. So there wasn't the culture of care and compassion because when you don't affirm the intrinsic dignity of every individual, the value of every individual, and that problem is compounded by the fact that when you believe in reincarnation, you have trivialized death. So one of our gods in Bhagavad Gita, the sacred scripture, he's saying, nobody dies, death is an illusion. There was never a time when you were not there and I wasn't there and there will never be a time when we will not be there. So death is only changing clothes, like we change clothes, soul changes bodies. So that death is trivial if you get rid of this girl now, she can be reborn as a male, hopefully, and then she'll have better life. So why let her suffer? This kind of attitude. And it extended in towards leprosy, uh, towards terminal sicknesses. So, so if you had sickness or disability or mental illness, or you were just a, a female when they wanted a male, it was just easier to eliminate people. Yes, there was absolutely no tradition of education for the blind, education for the deaf, care for those physically or emotionally challenged in any particular way. There was no, there must have been individual compassion, but no institutionalized care for those in need. All of this came with the gospel. Because you see Jesus touching the lepers, you see Jesus opening the eyes of the people born blind or people born lame. So at best a rich person might give um, alms, but you have Peter who says silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So there is power, there's compassion in Peter asking this um, beggar to, who, who was crippled, who couldn't stand up, to look at him. We have that eye contact. So that compassion was there. Jesus was marked by grace. Vishal, so you're you saying that compassion and, and looking after the widows and looking after the children, the orphans, and looking after the disabled, that in India is actually the work of the Christian church? Absolutely, yes. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's also in Europe, it's, the Greeks and Romans had their goddesses of compassion. Clementia, from which we get the word clemency, was the Roman version of the Greek goddess. The goddess. But she was not a person. She was an entity 
um, Eddie Ferry, but it distinct from God, despised by God, symbol of weakness actually. Compassion was not, not an attribute of God himself. So if you look at all the Hindu gods and goddesses, for example, every one of them is portrayed with weapons in their hands, in their fingers or hands. Uh, the compassion is not a, an attribute of God. But Jesus is compassion incarnate. So he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's included in forgiveness that, uh, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. So if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Let's move on to looking at kind of education and health. But in education, how did kind of a more universal set of education come, become part of Indian society? Well, that's a great contribution that Jesus and the gospel made to India to bring in the concept of universal education. Because in history, we never had a situation where a carpenter would actually know how to read and write. A brick maker would know how to read and write, or a fisherman, or a milk herdsman, or a tent maker like Paul was, uh, that they would know how to read and write or become learned scholars. This was not even part of European culture. Greeks and Romans didn't have this. Christian Europe during the Middle Ages didn't have universal education. The Roman Catholic Church invented the university and the world has to be grateful uh, for the invention of this institution of uh, the university, which is um, institutionalization of the life of the mind, the life of scholarship. This was a unique invention. But during the Catholic period, this was, university was an inst institution of the church, for the church, by the church. Church ran it, it came out of the uh, monasteries and cathedral schools, like Paris University was cathedral school, uh, where bishops were training clergy for the church. So students were those who were preparing themselves for sacred ministry in the church. A few Children of aristocrats would be there in those universities because the kings and nobility are donating. And those children would be there to become uh, diplomats and high government officials. But a merchant couldn't send his child to the university because university was not for everyone. It was an institution of the church, for the church, by the church. That changed when the Protestant Reformation, particularly Martin Luther, discovered the concept of uh, priesthood of all believers, that all believers are priests, therefore everyone must be educated. So once the gospel started coming to India from Europe, it was this mindset. So Luther, uh, William Carey, for example, the first English-speaking proper missionary, the pioneer. Never had, there had been other Protestant missionaries, but he's the one who got the missionary movement as a movement, which continues till today. So he couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge because he was a Baptist. In those days, you had to be an Anglican to go to Oxford or Cambridge, to go to a university. But 
uh, he was, but he was allowed to teach himself. So he became Dr. William Carey by himself and gave us our first university in Sirampur. So here is a cobbler who couldn't go to uni university because of the class system in England. Comes to India and gives us our first university. So it was William Carey and his group, particularly Hannah Marshman, uh, Mr. Marshman's wife, she was the one who began building the primary schools education around Sirampur. And then a lot of missionaries came and educational movement began in India. And when they first began educating, particularly girls, and including girls from lower castes, uh, they, the upper caste people here mocked the missionaries. They said, well, you might as well try and educate cows and buffaloes, uh, trying to educate girls. This was our attitude. But of course, all of that has changed now. In America, there are more Indian female doctors than Caucasian uh, female doctors. Uh, whereas 100 years ago, you couldn't find a female medical doctor in Velour, uh, area of Velour, South India, where we have Asia's best medical uh, institution now, Christian Medical College in Velour. I want to change, change uh, kind of gears and, and look at monasteries. And, and as monasteries have grown in, in, uh, in Europe and uh, Northern Italy, Europe, uh, Southern France, etc., they actually shifted a lot because they, 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 they covered a lot of ground. They, they changed the way um, agriculture was done. So these monasteries actually shifted about how, how they looked at work and they, they created more than they needed and therefore created wealth. Give me a bit of a picture of what, how you saw monasteries growing. Well, at first you had uh, in Europe the Desert Fathers who renounced the world. They also renounced the mind. So you go to Ukraine, for example, that's most dramatic, in Kyiv. There's a beautiful river and a very special kind of uh, soil which is sort of soft rock. It's there in one place, lots of churches all clustered together. You go there, under there, there are layers and layers of caves in which monks lived. And you go in those caves like catacombs and the guide will tell you, oh, such and such monk lived in this cave for 30 years. Did he write anything? Did he read anything? There was no light there, no, no writing, no reading. Spirituality for them was to kill the life of the mind, to have visions and dreams and you know, seeing the devil and Mary and angels and talking to them. Uh, so this was a spirituality which was not cultivating the life of the mind. But you had uh, Augustinian monasteries which were cultivating the life of the mind. So most of the early universities grew out of Augustinian monastery because August, St. Augustine saw that God is a rational person. His greatest gift in us, which makes us like him, is the mind. So to cultivate, to become godly means to cultivate the life of the mind. Now St. Benedictine it was who added the dimension of work that Buddhist monks here had to go out and beg to eat because they didn't have the women who will grind their grain and make their wheat and make their bread. So the Buddhist monks had to go out and beg. 
But Benedictine read in the gospel letters of Paul that whoever doesn't work shouldn't eat. So he required his monks to work. Now, that began to change the character of monasteries, that you couldn't beg, you had to work. But it also began the, became the means of the birth of modern technology and knowledge. Because the young men, 12, 13, 14 year old, they've gone, come into the monasteries, they've come to learn to pray, get to know God. But now they're having to grind wheat for the whole community and bake bread. So the abbots saw, see that and say, this is terrible. You know, the whole day these guys are working. So let's do something so that to minimize labor, because the Bible had a very important distinction between work and toil. So now you have these young men, uh, they are, because they are studying, they are not just workers, slaves, they are intellectuals who are studying. So they figure out how to put a little dam on a, uh, most of the monasteries are next to the rivers, little rivers. You dam the water, have the water fall, run these blades, use that motion to grind your grain, to do all sorts of power machinery. That's how power machinery and technology begins to develop. But then you have your 24-hour supply of power. You can run your furnace and you can have great um, iron smith and other metal, metallurgy stalls. So because you have the energy. And you begin to devise better tools for agriculture. So once the monasteries began, were able to secure their own farm, they were able to protect the village also. Because technology as it was developing, once you are grinding your own grain with water mill uh, or windmill later on, uh, you can also grind for all the entire village. So the women who are sitting and grinding their grain now have the time to study and do better things, which transforms the whole village. So these monasteries, at the minimum, just because of the manpower they have, they offer protection for agriculture. But then because these are uh, intellectuals, most many of them, who are in touch with other monasteries, they can experiment, they can learn, including medicine. That's how medical knowledge grew, that, oh, one monk is visiting from that monastery to this ministry and he finds a sick brother. Uh, he says, okay, we also had a patient like this. We treated him with this and he got healed. So you treat him with this. That's how the medical knowledge was accumulated because these things began to be written down. And, and if, if you're able to grind everybody's grain in your own grain, the, the outcome of that was actually wealth, wasn't it? There was a, there was a kind of a whole economy True. built around that. True. Music developed, technology developed, metallurgy developed, because for mu music you need metallurgy. You're building great churches, cathedrals, uh, art, you need all kinds of things. Those things began to develop. So all, the entire history of technology 
from 8th century to the 13th, 14th, 15th century until the time of Leonardo da Vinci, etc., is really history of monasteries and development of the intellectual life. I want to move over to another subject, which is the whole area of forgiveness. Here you are trying to help people, and there are people standing against you, which must have made you angry at the injustice of that. How did you deal with the issue of forgiveness around that? That is heart of what Jesus Christ is all about. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. Whole humanity has rebelled against God. And Jesus came to reconcile us with the Father. Because we are really guilty, we have actually offended, sinned against God, we cannot be reconciled without being forgiven. And that becomes the paradigm for human relationships. We are sinners, which means that we sin against our parents, we sin against our siblings, we sin against our spouses, our children, our colleagues, our staff, against everyone. And that's why families fall apart, nations fall apart. Right now, Middle East is just falling apart. Every nation going into civil war. Turkey and Saudi Arabia, particularly going into civil war, will really make it a mess. Uh, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, that conflict is bad enough. How do you forgive? On what grounds? or you keep building upon injustices for generations. You know, the, the civil wars going on in uh, Middle East today, a 1400-year-old, the Shiite and Sunni conflict, you keep bombing each other's mosques and each other's crowds. How do you forgive? And that's what Jesus is about. So he has to work on Peter to get Peter out of his dislike for the Gentiles. And it's a long process that Jesus is reconciling Jews and Gentiles into one body, which is what Paul finds so exciting. Now, Paul was a terrorist. He was Saul going door to door, persecuting those who disagreed with him theologically. Theological differences are Sunni-Shia differences, but ethnic differences of Kurds and Turks, etc., these are even more complicated. And that's what Jesus is changing, Peter. So my favorite uh, incident is when the Syrophoenician woman comes, Jesus has had a big quarrel with the Pharisees, whether everybody has to eat with washed hands, what goes inside, does that pollute us? What comes out from inside, does that pollute us? Uh, the, all the evil thoughts and evil actions. So that conflict was so intense with the Jews that Jesus decided to go into the, the Gentiles in, the, in Syria with Syrophoenician woman. She finds out that the Messiah has come. He wanted to be incognito rest after all that conflict and all that work. But she comes, uh, have mercy on my daughter who is demon possessed. She's shouting, Jesus is quiet. So the disciples come and say, please send her away. She's nagging us. Now, Jesus has already given them authority to cast out demons. They ought to have compassion on her. 
But no, no, no. They are on, there only for the children of Abraham. Jesus says nothing. So she comes. They're saying send her away. But she comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, it's not right to take the bread from the children and give it to dogs. So here is Jesus. He makes this awful statement to this uh, Gentile woman that it is not right to take bread from children, throw it to the dogs. You are a dog. Your daughter is not worth it. The dog is loved in the West, but it's a despised friend here in India. Um, so Peter is wondering what's happened to Jesus. This woman says, yes, Lord, but the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table from the children. And Jesus says that this is Abraham's daughter. She has faith like Abraham. Now, is Jesus a racist? He's been fighting against racism all his life. I'm not the light of Israel. I'm the light of the world. I'm not the savior of the Jews. I'm the savior of the world. For God so loved the world is the theme of his uh, preaching. This kingdom of God which is coming is for the whole world. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So I'm the king of the whole earth. So my kingdom is for everyone. Well, the, there was not one single demon there active in that girl. She was harassed by the demon who was possessing her. But there was another demon and that was in Peter, in the apostles and in Pharisees. This was the demon of racism. Jesus is, Peter would be saying to John, you know, we actually do call these people dogs, but we're not like him. We don't call them publicly dogs. We do it privately <laughs> when they are not there. So he's exposing their racism and he has to keep dealing with uh, Peter. You go into all the world. Peter doesn't want to go into Cornelius's home. In Acts chapter 9, God has, 10, God has to give him vision three times. You go into the home of this Gentile. Then he goes there and he says that now I see that God does not practice favoritism. But that doesn't end the racism from Peter. Paul has to confront him years later when Peter would not eat with Gentile converts until they are circumcised. So God has to deal with this problem of ethnic divisions to reconcile Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans and Jews and slaves and masters and male and female, make them one body. Now that's the power of the gospel that in, has come to India and it is transforming India. It's, a lot of things still have to happen, just like racism continues to be a problem in, in America. We haven't overcome our problem of casteism. But this is the gospel that is needed in the Middle East. So the question of forgiveness, Jesus as game changer, that these divisions that have made a mess of the Middle East right now, Jesus is the only one who can reconcile. The Syrian Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds, the Turkish Kurds, they will make a mess of Turkey and their own lives and the border, that whole area. And I think America right now is being re reconciling itself to create a Kurdistan, 
where the Kurds can live together. But actually, Kurds cannot live together, Syrian, Iraqi, and Turk Kurds cannot live together without the reconciling power of the gospel. Now, American gospel has weakened itself by big, big, making the gospel only a message of reconciliation with God. That you accept Jesus Christ, you go to heaven, you're reconciled with God. Because American church has compromised with racism and slavery for so long. But if we are to be impacted not by American evangelism, but by biblical gospel, we've got to be presenting to the world Jesus the reconciler, who is making all of us one body, the bride, the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. And finally, for you personally, how's Jesus the game changer? So my spiritual journey began when I was just uh, about six, six and a half years old. Uh, one day my father bought water chestnuts and we were living with my uncle and there were 14 kids in the house. All of us had to share after lunch. Uh, I loved them so much I finished them all before lunch. I was caught and tried. And I said I didn't steal. I, a friend of mine got them from a pond, gave them to me. Because obviously if I said I bought them, nobody would believe it. So a friend of mine got them from a pond, gave them to me. Those are the water chestnuts I ate. My father was really upset that not only I had been stolen, disobeyed, now I was lying. Uh, he didn't respect my uh, creative imagination. Imagination was good, integrity was more important for him. So he tell me, insisted that I tell him the truth. And I shouted back that I'm telling you the truth. But he wasn't a postmodernist. He didn't, wasn't interested in my truth. He wanted the truth. Um, but I felt he must respect my truth, which he didn't. So anyway, after some beating and after some counseling and after some loving, when I was still insisted that I didn't steal, he asked me to take him to that friend. I made him walk forever. I got tired. Uh, we never found that friend. So he thought I will then repent, but I got angry at him. How do I know where my friend is? He might have gone to some relative to another city to see his relatives. Well, my father was not amused. So he got very angry, beat me more and said, okay, you take me to that pond. I made him walk more <laughs> until I was ready to collapse. Never found the pond. All his love, all his chastisement, all his punishment, all his counseling were useless. Lying and stealing became my habits. So as I became a teenager, I would go into shops and steal. Snacks, detective novels, this, that and the other. I didn't mind uh, what I was stealing. I enjoyed those things. But I became concerned about lying because I would lie, it had become a habit, like people get addicted to cursing, swearing, abusing, pornography, drugs. I was addicted to lying. And I was lying about things for which there was nothing to be gained. Telling the truth would be just as good. But I would still lie. And then I'll hate myself. In the morning I will decide that today I'm not going to lie. 
But in the evening when I look back on the day, I've lied to my siblings, to my parents, to my friends, especially to my enemies, to teachers, everybody. And then I'll hate myself. Why can't I have self-discipline, you know, willpower like the Spider-Man, control myself? When I got really frustrated with myself, with my addiction, I, someone counseled me, an older gentleman, he's told me that your problem is not lack of willpower. You have a disease and it's called sin. You are a slave of sin. The good news is that there is a savior. His name is Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which is lost in sin. So what do I, how do I gain from it? How do I get this medicine of salvation? So he said, what you have to do is repent and you tell him that, Lord, I cannot save myself from this habit of lying. I didn't tell him anything about stealing. So I tell him that I can't save myself from this habit of lying, but because he shed his blood to save me from my sin, uh, I want him to save me from this habit. So I prayed as a sinner, accepting Jesus to become my savior, requesting him to become my savior. And the funny thing was that he saved me not only from lying, but also from stealing. He gave me the power to go to those shops and offer to pay them the money uh, for what I thought I had stolen. Now, thankfully, nobody ever took any money. They just thanked me for confessing and told me not to do this again. But uh, I began to love Jesus. It was later when I was studying philosophy in the university that I began to question if the Bible is God's word. So my intellectual conversion of realizing that my professors who didn't believe the Bible, they didn't know what the truth was. I had given, I had, I loved Jesus, but I gave up faith in the Bible. And I decided that I'm going to believe whatever the best professors, best philosophers, best scientists believe. So the question came of what do they believe? What do they know is the truth? And as, as I began studying Western philosophy, I began to realize that philosophy is a failed path to truth. Philosophers know that they don't know the truth and they know that they cannot know the truth. They no longer trust the human mind. So by then I had already studied Buddhism and I realized that Buddha had been saying this since 2600 years ago, that human mind cannot know the truth. Unless there is a God who knows and who reveals it to us. That's when I started studying the Bible and came back to realize that the Bible is God's word. Human beings can know truth. Our mind is made in God's image and it's made in his image so that we might seek and find truth. So uh, my intellectual conversion happened uh, later uh, once I began to study Western philosophy and Indian philosophy. But my moral conversion is where I found Jesus as the one who changed my life, delivered me from my addiction to sin. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.